Recently, we commemorated the 19th anniversary of 9-11. For most of us, it's a time for introspection. Every year, we remember 3,000 lives lost, their loved ones, and the first responders, and vow to never forget. But as a Muslim American, I dread 9-11, because honestly, I have to sit through reliving those initial few years where I was almost incessantly defending myself and my religion. I still do. Looking back, my memories of that fateful day are scattered. I had just moved to the US and was living on a college campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I remember watching the tragedy unfold on TV. My today's guest, Imam Khalid Latif, was also at his undergrad college campus at NYU in New York alongside 15,000 other students watching the plane hit the second tower. And in that moment, like many others, both our lives changed forever. In fact, it won't be wrong to assume that who we are today is the result of the atrocity of that day. My work as a human rights activist and Imam Khalid Latif's dedication to creating a pluralistic, American Muslim community. He was the first Muslim chaplain at both NYU and Princeton. He was nominated by Mayor Michael Bloomberg to be the youngest chaplain for the NYPD in history. Khalid has offered his experience and awareness to the U.S. State Department, various institutions, corporations, mosques, and other communities all over the world. He was named one of the 500 most influential Muslims in the world in 2009 by Georgetown University's Prince Al-Walid bin Talal Center for Muslim Christian Understanding and the Royal Islamic Strategic Studies Center. Now he is the executive director and chaplain for the Islamic Center at NYU. I am so honored and excited to have him on my show. You're listening to Immigrantly, and I'm your host, Sadia Khan. But I think for me, accessibility is very important in the community that I serve, Hmm. that there's not separation between religious leadership and the community, like the people you know, who serve the community and the people that we are serving Mm. and try to recognize, well, what are the needs, the realities, um, the things that people are going through. Khalid, thank you so much for coming on Immigrantly. I am so excited and I have so many questions for you. Well, thank you for having me. So we'll start with something that happened in May. You were interviewed by Jake Tapper on CNN, I believe, where you led a prayer for the victims of COVID-19 in America. And the prayer was a political one. You called out the failures of the government, police brutality, and effects of systemic racism on access to healthcare, which makes sense because we cannot talk about um, ramifications of COVID-19 without addressing all the things that you mentioned. And this is not the first time you have incorporated social justice with 
faith, you've done that often. So in your opinion, what is the relationship between God and social justice? Yeah, I mean, more broadly speaking, I think, you know, to me, the idea of good religion is that it brings its practitioner to taking on social inequities and social ailments, uh, injustices, if you will. Uh, and if one's individual practice of religion is not bringing them to take on social ailments, I would question, well, you know, what is the point of that religion? Hmm. This isn't to think about it in terms of weaponizing to discount somebody else's practice or their faith, but to understand introspectively, hmm. you know, religion in and of itself is, again, to me, meant to be something that's transformative. And I practice Islam as religion. And within my faith tradition, you know, religion and spirituality are not things that are separated or divorced from one another, but um, they go hand in hand. The inward and outward elements have a synergy that is necessary. And, you know, to be situated in an area where your heart becomes transformed through ritual and practice as a means to something, mm. not as an ends. And it awakens to societal ills that take place around you. Uh, the idea is that with strategy, you become a means through which balance in and of itself is restored and, you know, I think justice as a value doesn't become devoid of other values like mercy, compassion, etc. cetera. Mm. But where one can recognize that fundamentally their strong need for people who claim to have ethics and values that stem from their practice of their faith tradition, to be able to then maneuver around obstacles that at times become vision modifiers for many of us mm. and get in the way from understanding the lived realities of minorities, those who are underserved and underprivileged. You know, a religion like Islam that is very God-centric, that also yields to a universal principle that says anyone is entitled to have access to God, mm. regardless of their race, their culture, their social class, etc., um, necessitates a practitioner to be able to see how they become a remedy for these kind of things as opposed to uh, a contributor in any capacity. So let's talk about that. As you mentioned, you do practice um, a lot of introspection. You've focused a lot on calling out societal ills. I've listened to a lot of your lectures, seen your videos, and you're a huge supporter of the movement for Black Lives Matter in America. You've called for the defunding of the NYPD, and you mentioned George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, among others, in your CNN prayer. But what's interesting to me is that you could have a perspective of someone who used to be on the inside. Are you still a chaplain for NYPD? No, I, I stopped working for the NYPD a few years ago. Right. So you used to be part of that. So speaking from your own experiences, can you speak about the role of police in our society? I mean, you're going to have varied experiences in terms of policing from local communities, state, federal. The challenge with policing in the United States is that foundationally and systemically, the system in and of itself is meant to do exactly what it is that we see it doing. The conversation is not about whether there's good police officers or bad police officers, but on a systemic level, the United States has uh, a very deeply entrenched anti-blackness that you can find within any 
institution that really exists from education to welfare to Department of Justice, immigration, definitely law enforcement. Right. And so when we talk about policing and the challenges that come with policing, the need for police reform and the need to recognize that fundamentally, uh, like most institutions, this was an institution that sought to privilege a certain majority demographic while simultaneously seeking to underprivilege and underserve a minority demographic, right? When you look at the European context through which people left their homes to come to establish themselves in the Americas, Hmm. there was an aspiration to create a land of diversity. Uh, The European frame through which people were leaving did not have that aspiration to embrace diversity. And where people were launching transatlantic slave trades and crusades in the name of religion and faith, and then they embrace liberalism, you know, in a mode to try to remedy certain aspects of society that were becoming quite difficult and highly problematized. In the United States, we didn't launch our worst battles in the name of any faith tradition or spiritual system, but our worst battle in this country is the civil war, you know, took place around issues stemming from race and ethnicity. You literally have the foundational documents of this country affording full privilege to white males. Uh, Women were given nothing, and black men and women weren't considered to even be a whole person in comparison to their white counterparts. And that's a challenge that we see existing even till today. I worked at Princeton University for a year from 2006 to 2007. I was 24 when I started working at Princeton, and it was a very amazing experience, to say the least. In what sense? Uh, You know, when I got on the ground at Princeton, in my first week there, I was meeting people like Toni Morrison and Cornell West and, you know, individuals who were responsible for the resurgence of China's economy and some of the founding members of Amazon.com. And it Mm. really made me wonder what it was that I was doing in a place like Princeton. (laughs) And then a week later... I started to get letters from alumni saying that we don't want Muslims at Princeton. We don't want your Sharia law at Princeton. Someone like you shouldn't ever be in a place like this. And when I tried to ask my supervisors, the heads of religious life, as to what was going on and what my responses should be, they had said that simultaneous to my hiring, the dean of the chapel a really nice man by the name of Tom Breitenthal. Hmm. He had accepted a position to become the Archbishop of Southern Ohio. And because there was now a vacancy in his role, these alumni were sending me letters like this because Hmm. they thought I had been hired for his position. And this was kind of their frustration. And I said, well, you know, that's not any better. It's a lot worse. Like, why couldn't I be the Hmm. head of Hmm. religious life Hmm. at Princeton? Because I'm Muslim, like that's, Hmm. you know, problematic. At the end of the year, one of the things that happens at Princeton's campus uh, is they have an alumni parade where alumni as far back as decades ago will come and march in these white and orange kind of pinstripe suits and displaying Princeton colors with even more recent alums. Mm. And they uh, do this around graduation time. And there is kind of an order to the parade in terms of how it proceeds. They have the oldest alums at the front, and then the younger ones kind of take up the rear. And you see classes that go on and on 
for really a long time that are just elderly white males. Mm. At some point, you start to see some women, you might see some people of color, but even by the end of it, the most recent class years are still white men. Yeah. One of the things that I did that year was participate in a ceremony that takes place at campuses across the country. Unofficially, it's called a Pan-African Baccalaureate Ceremony, mm. where usually Black and Brown students, but mostly Black and those who self-identify as African-American, will have a separate graduation ceremony that takes place. And I remember being at that ceremony, the young woman who was the valedictorian mm. of that class, she said to her graduating peers that just because we are at Princeton does not mean we are of Princeton. Yeah, We should always remember what our ancestors and those who came before us had to sacrifice so that we could be where we are today. So we should not let our degrees and our credentials and our networks ever be for self-gain or self-motivation but really how do we meet the needs and advance the collective benefit for our community and for people on a whole. And I think that's really where you see some of these challenges stem mm. from. You have many institutions that were built foundationally that sought to include certain demographics while purposely excluding other demographics. And law enforcement is not any different. It's built off of the same principles that seek to cater to a majority privileged class while simultaneously um, rooting itself in a supremacist mindset that is heavily entrenched in anti-Blackness that seeks to further delegitimize and disenfranchise those who come from typically underserved and underprivileged demographics mm. and in large part people who are black. Khalid, there has been increased funding for training and reform as some may call it and it's supposed to combat uh, racist biases but we are not seeing a change right? Why do you think that is the case? Like what else can we do to change that mindset? Well, I don't know where the funding is that's going to any kind of trainings. I know that at times I have asked individuals at various tables to put funding into implicit bias training that would allow for some of this to be addressed. There's opportunity to do things that are quite ceremonial and superficial and things that can really combat certain things. But realistically, there's not even funds that are being put into doing it at a ceremonial level. Hmm. When you have power dynamics that favor the majority in such a way where there is now removed a sense of accountability. And you have individuals that really at the end of the day could quite much care less, right? I Mm. mean, if you read a book like The New Jim Crow or you watch the documentary 13th, Mm. if these are things that people listening are trying to say, well, how do I educate myself and learn about this? Mm. I mean, you can see where there's synergies between political apparatus, media, a narrative that gets constructed that yields a certain fear that renders society to be quite passive in the face of inequity that is impacting minority communities. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, you have on record people who are part of the Nixon campaign who say quite explicitly that they have strategy that was essentially meant to 
impact the way black people would live Hmm. and not having any challenge to, you know, think twice about what kind of consequences, right? Mm So um, there's a man by the name of John Ehrlichman, who is a former Nixon domestic policy chief, Hmm. who said the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. Mm. And he goes on to say, you understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana Mm. and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Mm. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And this guy is the former domestic policy chief wow. to the president of the United States. Mm. And what you see is this kind of representation of constructs of fear that allow for this type of inequity to exist. You have politicians utilizing terms like thug and predator mm. Uh, when they're defining black people and a war on drugs that gets concocted while TV shows like cops are airing on national television to reinforce those same stereotypes where you would have, you know, white men in blue uniforms arresting black men and mass incarceration then begins to be another phase of stratification of American society that starts from slavery, goes to Jim Crow yields itself in mass incarceration that's impacting and devastating the lives of hundreds of thousands of Black families every year. And it's a pattern that we find that goes in other directions as well, right? The war on terror doesn't build itself out any differently, where politicians are utilizing terms like Islamist, jihadist, fundamentalist, Mm. terrorist, TV shows like 24 and Homeland are all over television. And you find domestic policy as well as international policy that has our country deporting millions of people, building out things like Guantanamo Bay, dropping drones on many innocent Mm. people all over the world um, without any sense of consequence because it is now taking advantage of a demographic that engages the other in a very superficial way Mm. and is not necessarily caring about what is happening to the people that are being unjustly treated. This is why the slogan is Black Lives Matter, Mm. because every system is demonstrating over and over again how, in fact, to the United States, Black life is not important and Black life does not matter. And it creates policy that has continuity and just reorients itself Mm. until we see a power dynamic that kind of pushes back against it, saying that this is unacceptable at the end of the day. So let's talk about Muslim identity. You just mentioned a lot of things that I want to unpack. We just passed the 19th anniversary of 9-11. And in your NPR interview, this was with Terry Gross, I believe, in 2017. You spoke about the way you were treated post 9-11. And now it's been almost, what, 20 years. 
I feel it's socially somehow acceptable to openly talk about the way Muslims in America were treated post 9-11. I posted a Twitter thread about that as well. You're unapologetically Muslim, which I love. Um, and you speak about how you not only play the part, you also are very much physically uh, representative or whatever um, Muslim identity looks like to Americans. How do you think the public perception of Islam has shifted, if at all, since 9-11. You know, I, I think the challenge with utilizing 9-11 as a marker hmm. is that, one, it doesn't take into indication or consideration, you know, things that were happening prior to September 11th. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And there's a lot that goes on, similarly, in the frame of government, of media, that very heavily otherizes Islam and Muslims. There's a book by a man named Jack Shaheen that's called Real Bad Arabs, mm. but the word real is spelled R-E-E-L. Mm. Uh, mm. And it's talking about just the archetype of, you know, the Arab, the Muslim in Hollywood as kind of a hijacker, terrorist, mm. etc. <laughs> and, you know, it gives a lot of insight. And there's many other things that have been written both prior to and since then. But this is like an ongoing problem. The other challenge, I think, with 9-11 being kind of a marker is that, you know, this is a narrative that also gets imposed upon Muslims, that you have this idea that Muslims in the United States have to identify themselves through September 11th and are consistently under that narrative, um, which then heavily attaches us to conversations around immigration and security constantly as opposed to anything else that we, you know, have to offer. One of the things that becomes quite evident after September 11th is that immigrant Muslims now have the opportunity to recognize really how much power they do not possess mm. and how wealth in and of itself does not equate to power. Exactly. Because you saw substantially distinct responses from Muslims who were immigrants and Muslims who came from indigenous communities, mm. African-Americans, mm. for example, who have been going through this forever, right? 30% of slaves that came to the United States uh, were Muslim. Mm. And there's a deep legacy in Black experience in the United States around Islam that quite often gets left out of the mix. And I would say that's quite purposeful. One, because an Islamophobic narrative seeks to make homogenous like yeah. Muslim experience and present us as being monolithic. So it's easier to say that, you know, we are from 500 miles away or stuck somewhere 500 years in the past. This is why post 9-11, you saw TV stations run quite rampant with Muslims who were speaking and creating sound bites, but they tended to either be South Asian or Arab Muslims. Mm. And you hardly ever see people who are black because it's very hard to discount someone's Americanness when they are African American. Yeah. <laughs> it's very easy to otherize somebody who is coming from an immigrant background. And I think popular attitudes towards Muslims in the United States, you can see there are shifts, right? So if we were to look at it, for example, through the prism of corporate America, companies and major brands across the board are starting to put visibly identifiable Muslims in commercials and ad campaigns. And people could say that they're doing that because they're kind and compassionate, which might be a reason. Mm. But likely they're doing it because their market research shows that 
the majority of consumers will not be dissuaded, but also will be attracted mm. to commercials that are like this. Mm. Meaning that popular sentiment in certain areas by certain brands, they know that their consumer base will continue to purchase, if not purchase more, at the inclusion of these types of individuals and symbols in their commercials. Uh, you can also see that some of that plays itself out in the way that politics kind of functions. Mm. We see continuously a rhetoric within the right wing um, and Republicans that has gotten increasingly more vitriolic yeah. in terms of just public sentiments and statements where there has been an ongoing challenge of anti-Muslim sentiment mm. uh, by members of the Republican Party for quite some time now. Uh, and it was only when Donald Trump pushed the envelope to a certain point in his first election campaign for president, that people started to distance themselves from his statements. What you also saw uniquely at that time politically was that it was one of the first times that Democrats now started to speak out against some of the rhetoric, where prior to, there was a silence and an acquiescence to things that were taking place and a very liberal Islamophobia um, that has also existed for quite some time. Absolutely. But going into that election cycle, mm. Muslims now shifted from political strategies, viewpoints, from being a liability to an asset. Here now, again, we see that there are certain challenges that come up in terms of where and how Muslims are viewed. On very localized levels, you can find in cities across the country that politicians and electeds have had to go beyond a certain pandering of Muslims because Muslims have become more organized and cohesive. They represent a swing vote in many places. Mm. And on a federal level, we see in like many key states that there are also large demographics of Muslims that will play a pivotal role in determining election outcomes on federal levels as well. And I think the narrative that you see is one that's starting to be constructed from within. And popular sentiment, you know, is very hard to pinpoint because of how media kind of bombards and floods the airways now with social media and other things technologically. Mm. You could ask 10 different people what their perspectives are on something and get 10 different answers just based off of what they're reading and what they're looking at. But overall, I would say that things are improving both intra the Muslim community as mm. well as outside of. Coalitions are being built, people are becoming more organized, and you'll continue to see a growth in that regard. It's not in a vacuum though, because simultaneously you see many people who buy into this idea that their whiteness is being threatened mm. and their quote unquote way of life is being threatened. And you see a lot of challenges that come up as a result of it, you know, that are not just in terms of rhetoric, but also policies and systems. Um, you see a lot of anti-Muslim violence that's very racialized. Mm. This is where we see members of the Sikh community who are, you know, quite often beaten and even killed yeah. because people are not looking at them from their religious standpoint. They're looking at them from their skin color and just what they perceive someone other to be. But I think, you know, there's been a lot of change and some of that's been good and some of that has reinforced what it is that, you know, we're really dealing with and, and up against.
So when we talk about narratives and what I have seen, and unfortunately, I came to America around the time of 9-11. So I have seen America being this paranoid military state. I don't know what America looked like before that. But the prevailing narrative since 9-11, and that's why I wanted to use 9-11 as a marker, because I've totally agree with you. Uh, Muslims were discriminated against before that. But the reason I wanted to use that was because there was this heightened sense of Muslims being um, suspected. And sadly, what I see is that a lot of Muslims have bought into that mischaracterization as well. I see a warped sense of self-loathing at times. For instance, I have friends who think, oh, it's okay to be pulled out for a random check at the airports because perpetrators of 9-11 were Muslims, right? So we somehow deserve all of that. So what I want to understand is how do we change perceptions within Muslim community? Because as you said, it's not a monolith. Uh, we come from different identities, culture, ethnicities, languages. Well, I mean, if you look at the collective history of Muslims, in our history, we have the realities of slavery, we have the realities of colonization, mm. and the impact of these types of systems are that they not just physically shackle people, but they have the ability to psychologically shackle people. My family is from Kashmir in background. Mm. After partition, my father moved to Lahore, where he grew up with, you know, his siblings and my grandparents. Uh, I've been to like where their house was in Guamundi, mm. um, saw kind of where they grew up. And, you know, my father and my uncle came to the States as doctors. And my, you know, my understanding and take on why people would encourage their kids to be doctors so much coming out of colonization, for example, Right. I work at a university. I have a ton of young South Asian students mm. who mm. all are studying to be doctors. Many of <laughs> do not want to be doctors. And I'll tell them, you know, well, why would your parents really want you to be doctors? You know, do you ever think about this and think about the reality that they're coming out of? Quite often, the only thing that would keep them from perhaps having to answer to somebody under colonization that was constantly telling them that their way of being was a problem mm. and that they had to suddenly seek validation by becoming more British in their ways and That's interesting. You know, more Western yeah. in their ways, quote unquote. Mm. But if they became a doctor, they didn't then have to answer to somebody in the same way that was constantly putting them down, um, whether they were conscious of it or not. It's a, it's a product of a supremacist system. You get cross-generational shackling as well that your sense of validation now comes from trying to become like your oppressor and the one who was seeking to hold you down. And it's very easy to build like this sense of self that you're trying to gain validation from the ones that were mistreating you in the first place. I think to give people a sense of recognition, like it's, it's not easy, right? It's mm. very difficult mm. when you're in a space where you're constantly being kind of held down and compared and, put on the spot and you might be the only person that's like you in a space where everybody else is very different from you. And so it shouldn't be without compassion, but I think kind of getting to the root of it all mm. um, necessitates understanding where it actually starts from, mm. right? You can mm. go into a lot of places 
in the world and you can see the unfortunate realities that colonization has left behind in its wake. Yeah. Um, and you can see also that across generations, there's been a psychological shackling of many people mm. who still st- find themselves in a place where they believe that they need to somehow become, you know, white, right? Yeah. I mean, literally, <laughs> you go to the Indian subcontinent <laughs> and they have creams that yeah, you can absolutely. buy that make your skin whiter. Mm. Mm. You know, you have these ideas that you have to let go of parts of your cultural identity. You have to let go of dress and language and your mm. hair has to be cut a certain way or, you know, that like, and I'm not faulting anybody for it. If you want to dress a certain way, do it on your own terms. Right. But if you're doing it because you're trying to appease a certain people that you think about constantly and they hardly think about you ever, <laughs> that's not going to really work. And this is what supremacy does, right? Yeah. Supremacy says that you are always from someplace else. Mm. I am always from someplace else. Mm. We are never from where we exactly are right Mm. now in the moment. You know, I took some of my students to have lunch at a street cart near our center at New York University before COVID. Mm. And we were eating or waiting for our food. There's maybe like 15, 20 of us. And there's a middle-aged Caucasian woman who starts to push her way through our group. And she's saying, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Mm. Can't you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to, you know, order my food. And then when she gets to the front of the line, she looks at me face to face and says, oh, I guess you can't understand what I'm saying. Tell me, how do they say, excuse me, where you come from? And I said, we say, excuse me. (laughs) No, no, the place where your family is from. How do they say, excuse me there? And I said, you know, my family's from New Jersey and we say, excuse me. She couldn't understand how somebody who looks like me is from the same place that she's from. Mm. And that's problematic in and of itself. But now when that mindset interjects its presence at tables that are deciding and impacting policy Mm. that minorities are not present at, the only part of us that are present are uh, stereotypes of us exactly. and quite often gross negative stereotypes, um, not things that are positive in any way, shape or form. And this is a problem, mm-hmm. right? We, but we kind of succumb to it. Another product of supremacy is that why you do what you do always has to have a reason to it, mm-hmm. but why somebody else does what they do, um, is very different. Uh, and they don't ever have to explain themselves as to why, you know, they do the things that they do. Supremacy Mm. also gets you to believe that the thoughts that you are thinking are your own thoughts, when in reality, the thoughts that you think are thoughts that they want you to think. Mm. And that's not conspiracy-esque, but it starts to get you to believe that you have to be other than what you actually are to be accepted by those who only will take you in when you become that which you are not. And people don't want to admit it, that this is something that happens to them. Yeah. But then you see people walking around and you're like, why are you behaving in the ways that you behave? Or why are you willing to compromise? I had a friend of mine who said to me, don't you think it's important for us to engage the Trump administration? And I said, oh, no wow. way. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he said, well, isn't it better for us to get 60% of our rights rather than no rights at all? And I said, no, like, what are you thinking? Right? Yeah. Like how... 
one, who would even begin to determine which of the 60% of the rights we would be given? Uh-huh. And likely for us to even be given 60% of our rights, somebody else would have to lose that many more of their rights. Right. And, you know, have it kind of uh, allocated in an even more inequitous way. But that mindset is one of insecurity and inferiority that comes from these experiences that we have that can be remedied, but they have to come from empowerment movements, people finding a sense of strength through their cultural identity, right? Like you have to be proud to be brown. Exactly. And not be afraid to say that I'm not white and there's nothing wrong with that. And that doesn't mean that white people can't be white, but they are not like the primordial way of existence, the way that <laughs> supremacy would have us believe. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Khalid, I want to pivot a little and I want to talk about your work as an executive director and chaplain for Islamic Center at New York University. I believe you give Juma khutbas as well. So I want to talk about that. How do you structure conversation around that? Because I've been to a lot of khutbas, especially eat khutbas and when I'm all like decked up, excited, I go there and the imam starts talking about heaven and hell in complete absolutes and you know they basically tell you that you're legit going to hell. There's no way you'll escape that and it's always a damper. So how do you um, structure your conversations? Uh, it varies but I, I also you know serve a pretty diverse community Mm. so i couldn't speak to other people's experiences i i i've been to my fair share of um juma khutbas and friday sermons that have been quite terrible (laughs) but i've also been to many that have been really amazing and great i i couldn't say that for any reason as to why someone might speak to one or the other i i do think that you know, it, it's, it can be either or in some instances, unfortunately. Mm. But I think for me, accessibility is very important in the community that I serve, mm. that there's not separation between religious leadership and the community, like the people, you know, who serve the community and the people that we are serving. Mm. And try to recognize, well, what are the needs, the realities, um, the things that people are going through? And, you know, how do we create a community that is based off of people's lived experiences mm. and a theology that is there, but also understands how to answer questions that people are having posed to them inwardly that they might not often get a chance to really explore within the prism of religion. Mm. You know, the challenge with Islam as a religion, like any religion that has ritual and mechanics to it, uh, it can be something that gets focused purely on the ritualistic elements. Mm. And I think that is a big part of it and should not be left behind. But there are complementary understandings around ethics and morals and values, you know, where we can only give to people what it is that we possess in the first place. You Mm. can't give somebody something that you don't have to give to them. And if all we've been given is do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs, that can become quite problematic, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we try to cater to the diversity that exists in our community and speak in ways that, you know, help people to understand things that are still authentic to our tradition, mm-hmm. but might not get discussed as much as needs to be or not discussed in, you know, the forums that 
many people access in, in these ways. And so, you know, Juma is, I think, a very important time, mm-hmm. right? If the mm-hmm. average person who is a Friday prayer goer, you know, goes to the Juma prayer for like four decades of their life, like mm-hmm. six decades, mm-hmm. seven decades, whatever. Um, and the average Juma sermon is 30 minutes long, you know, 40 minutes. Um, you're saying that in a given year that somebody is getting exposed to 26 hours of learning. Mm. And over the course of every 10 years, you know, that's 260 hours worth mm. of information. And it's, well, what are people's real takeaways? Like, what are they gaining from this? And so every community is going to have like a unique dynamic. Mm. And the people who serve those communities have to recognize what the dynamic is of the given population, how they will pedagogically learn the best and how that might resonate um, within kind of the the community goer, Mm. if that makes sense. Mm. So I try to listen to the people that um, I serve and try to hear from them what it is that's going on with them and then incorporate that as best as I can into um, what it is that that I have you know, that I have going on with them. So as an imam or a spiritual leader, can I call you spiritual leader? Is that the right term? Whatever you like. Okay. Uh, do you find yourself having these moments where your actions come from your ego? Yeah. I mean, everybody wrestles with the ego. And I think, you know, if we're identifying the ego, mm. um, we live in a very egocentric society right? This is what supremacy is, right? Like supremacy to Mm. me is a modern day shirk. Um, It's something that seeks to elevate the self to a point where it's idolized and it puts the self at the center of everything. But when we live in a society that teaches us to constantly look at ourselves and not for ourselves and not really appreciate finding meaning and purpose through just what exists around us, we become heavily identified through externals, Mm -hmm. what we possess and what we own, right? There's a reason why, you know, the telephones that we buy have the brand names on the outside, or the clothes that we wear have logos, you know, external, Mm -hmm. or the cars that we drive have ornaments on the hood and not hidden somewhere away. Mm -hmm. We are quite often identified by what it is that we own. And the reality is such that our owning of these things is rooted in them actually owning us or possessing us. When you talk to most people, you know, they're identified by what it is that they do professionally or, you know, if they're not doing anything professionally at a Mm. university, my students will constantly ask each other, what are you studying? Because society equates what you do professionally to who it is that you are at times in your entirety. But in reality, there's so much more to us Mm. and what we do and what we believe and what goes into us. So the idea in, you know, Islam as a spiritual tradition Mm. is not to be egocentric, but to be God-centric and to yield to a point of connectivity that doesn't see individualism or independence as a primary mode of motivation or aspiration to achieve, but sees interdependence as kind of the epitome of self-actualization. Not how do you kind of just live on your own, but how do we see where we really lean on each other and support one another and bring people in, in an interconnectedness that becomes very necessary 
And that transcends shared externals, mm. you know, shared race, shared class, shared right. ethnicity, but starts to be based off of shared internals, shared values, shared hearts. And so where egocentricity is put to the side, coming to a place that's God-centric, mm. that utilizes the divine as a center point, mm. because everyone can access God, right. we now have a connector that enables everybody to exist in a bigger sphere of existence as opposed to just, I'm at the center and everything orbits around me. Mm. For me, do I wrestle with my ego? Constantly, right? Mm. You can't have spiritual growth if there's nothing to grow. And if you are always right, or somehow <laughs> like what God wants you to do is always what you end up doing, then likely you are not <laughs> practicing Islam. Yeah, What you are doing is not being submissive to a higher entity, right. but more likely if everything you do always is what also you think God wants you to do, you've now likely made God submissive to you in some way. So talking about your students, how do your teachings enable your students to evoke consciousness or sustain empathy and the kind of idealism that in my opinion, and I've said this before um, on other shows as well, diminishes with more experience or age? I mean, I try to teach people and reach people like in, in specific ways. Every person has their own strengths and their non-strengths. There's certain general principles that we can all kind of apply to ourselves. Hmm. But when it comes down to it, recognizing that the anecdotal experience of someone else is not going to really define and dictate what one other person might go through. Mm -hmm. um, but the ability to tap into a uh, recognition of who you are in your entirety holistically mm -hmm. with modernity, there's a lot of challenges as well as a lot of opportunities and growth, right? Like mm -hmm. we are literally right now having a conversation with each other, right. despite the fact that there's a global pandemic taking place mm. and we are miles away from each other, mm. let alone how many people will actually hear this conversation who are also potentially situated all over the world. Yeah. That's remarkable. Mm. And we could do this also with like videos on in real time mm. and live stream. That couldn't happen years ago, let alone centuries ago. The technological advancements with modernity are, are really really amazing. Hmm. But with modernity, you also have a lot of challenges. And one of the challenges that comes up of many is that there becomes a diminishing of places of stillness and reflection. Hmm. You know, there's not so much that goes into contemplation or just kind of thinking. And it's not that people think or don't think, everybody hmm. thinks, hmm. but to embrace the idea that you and I can choose how we think about the things that we're thinking about and also choose what we're thinking about in the first place mm. um, becomes harder to do when you're constantly just moving habitual mechanical modes of engagement. Right. For example, most universities base curriculums off of teaching people how to become workers in some way. Mm. You become a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, even an artist or an activist or an academic, anything you really want to become. But the curriculum that's teaching you to be a worker is not going to, for the most part, be intertwined with a curriculum that's going to teach you how to be a thinker. You know, why do you love the things that you love? Or why do you hate the things that you hate? Why do you desire the things that you desire? 
And fundamentally what makes us who we are, you know, gets left off of the bat and we are more focused on, again, these ideas of externals. I try to teach my students and my community the importance of self-care, mm-hmm. that the physical wellness, emotional wellness, spiritual wellness, mental wellness is all overlapping, that it's okay and also very necessary to take time for your own self-growth, to engage in outlets that rejuvenate energy that you've spent mm. in certain times that you don't want to always run on empty or fumes, that you should make sure you're eating well and sleeping well and drinking a lot of water and not consuming things that are like gross for your body and you know moving in a direction that you embrace the idea that if you are not designing your life, someone else is going to design mm. it for you. Mm. And it wraps itself back into like these systems of you know, patriarchy and supremacy and kind of overt capitalistic greed that has us chase after things that are materialistic that only yield complacency and temporary satisfaction as opposed to contentment that allows for an inward balance Mm. that has us take on whatever is there with us with a a mindset of growth, um, if, if that makes sense. So in terms of spirituality, how do you continue to evolve in your faith and spiritual practice? Uh, for me personally, you know, I think it's something that is ongoing because who I am is going to change year to year and even month to month and day to day. Hmm. In Islam as a tradition, we have a narration that says that the state of one who has belief is such that they change 40 times in a day. And the one who is without belief is one who stays the same for 40 years in a row. Um, Mm. But being someone who is willing to adapt and grow and evolve um, becomes important. And, you know, in my own reflection, what I've seen is that quite often the organic parts of us uh, or the parts of us rather that grow organically, Mm. you know, are our physical selves and our emotional selves. Um, our mental selves even, right? Like I have Mm. a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. My five-year-old literally is much taller than when he was five months old. He eats different food, you know, drinks different things. Mm. There's a maturation that he goes through organically Mm. um, that also impacts him emotionally and mentally. His spiritual maturation has to be at a similar pace and kind of have growth to it. Mm. And that tends to not happen very deliberately for many of us um, as we get older Mm. and adapting to certain things as life circumstances and situations change. And so I have to have a willingness to see that there's an elasticity of time that allows for me to one, do the things that I need to prioritize Mm. and two, see where I can move it around. So I make sure best as I can to exercise regularly Mm. because physical wellness is very much so, in my opinion, attached to like spiritual wellness and not anything crazy. Um, I used to, when I was in high school, train quite extensively as I played various sports and Mm. was supposed to play in college and then got injured in my senior year of high school and didn't pursue anything in that Mm. regard. But that's not the kind of workout routine that any of us really need if we're not going into that mode of 
kind of training for something purposefully. You can work out a few times in a day, mm. uh, in a in a week, you know, for a certain amount of time. You can work out every day for a certain amount of time, just to ensure that you have a certain like wellness and working out, you know, distinctively, not mm. for like vanity, but for health reasons, right. right? To to stay healthy and for yourself. And I think ensuring that my sleep is, you know, where it needs to be as well in that regard. And then building into my routine beyond like religious obligations and prohibitions, outlets that make sense for me, that help me to kind of have times to relax and to breathe and to increase in focus and attentiveness so that I'm not just constantly running around here and there. Mm. And when something heavy hits me, it becomes devastating. But I take the time and moments that are going really well or moments that are a little more hectic Mm. to ensure that there's also time for my own personal self-care and growth, uh, reflection, you know, meditation, contemplation, service, learning, you know, all of these things kind of adding up. Spending time with my family is very amazing and rejuvenating. Uh, I love spending time with my children. You know, we get to do a lot of things that we enjoy. Mostly a lot of my tastes are very childish, I would say, in elementary. (laughs) So we enjoy watching a lot of the same movies and, you know, TV shows and things to that effect. But all of it kind of comes back and, you know, impacts my inward. Right. That helps me to take on things that are are going on externally. So in the end, you mentioned you have children. Uh, What invaluable lessons do you think we can learn from our kids. I mean, I learn things from my kids every day Mm. and I'm not even just saying that, but, you know, I think my children firstly helped me to understand that I had like a beginning point as well, Mm. a product of many yesterdays. And I can see as they are coming to terms with certain things in their worlds and in their spheres of existence and learning about certain values, I can see that they have like a certain confidence that, you know, I, I only also see in like very elderly people, right? Yeah. Like if I go into my children's classroom and I ask, you know, who is the fastest, everybody says they're the fastest. And if I say right. jump the highest, like not only will every kid say they can jump the highest, a lot of them start jumping up and down mm. to show how high they can jump. And even where they're clearly not jumping the highest, they'll still say, look, I'm jumping higher than everybody else. <laughs> but they have a certain like, sense of self that allows for them to just be who they are and to aspire towards kind of reaching their dreams. You see this in like very elderly people also, who they get to a certain point where they could just care less what anybody thinks about them, right? They just say what they want to say and do what they want to do. And people just listen to them out of deference because they're old. It's in like the middle years where people kind of get thrown off and they're bitter or, you know, they're (laughs) very kind of restricted and not kind of moving in a frame of, you know, what's my potential, but how do I kind of just stay in this like safe spot and not really kind of, kind of grow or or move in any way. I think, you know, there's a certain curiosity that children have where they ask a lot of questions Mm. and they unfortunately only get shut down when adults try to answer every question as opposed to sometimes being comfortable by saying, I don't know the answer. Yeah, that's a good point. um, Get frustrated and tell them to just stop asking questions. Uh, But where we stop wanting to learn and grow and understand 
you know, how things function and kind of deepen in our sense of self-awareness mm. and self-recognition, mm. you know, becomes pretty, pretty remarkable. It's also easy to see how influenced young people are by the environments and surroundings mm. that they find themselves situated in. And it's only at a very young age, unfortunately, that people start being really terrible to each other and really mean to each other yeah. and can be very hurtful but they also can be fairly kind and compassionate mm. and do things that leave you amazed that someone at that age could do. Yeah, because they have raw emotions. I think children have raw emotions. They It will just show. That's yeah. something that we I, I have noticed with my kids. Like, you know, if they're happy, they're happy. They're sad, they're sad. They're angry. Everything is out there, you know. Um, they're vulnerable, yeah. right? They're willing to kind of expose it in a way that's not hidden and they, you know, and you can learn a lot from them if there's a willingness to say that they have something to offer in that regard. Exactly. You know? Thank you so much, Khalid. This was wonderful. It was an extremely insightful conversation. Thank you for your time. Um, I know we've run out of time, so hopefully maybe we can have a 2.0 of this um, sometime in future, but thank you so much. Thank you. This was one of the most insightful and intense conversations I've had in a long time. And I'm so glad Khalid could take some time out to interview with us, obviously virtually. Would love to hear your thoughts. Email us if you have any suggestions or feedback on this episode. You can email us at info at immigrantlypod.com. And next week, I'll be back with another incredible story. Take care. Oh.